Welcome to Honest Retail, the weekly podcast that dishes out the truth about the latest news, trends, and blunders from the CPG, consumer, and retail industries. Now, here are your hosts, Cameron McCarthy, Taylor Foxman, and Carlton Fowler. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 42 of Honest Retail. Uh, me and CJ are coming to you from BevNet. It's been a fun uh, day and a half here on the West Coast. Uh, Taylor is uh, unfortunately not here with us, uh, but we do have an awesome guest. Oh, she's in here with the pod. She's not here with us at BevNet, unfortunately. <laughs> Let me clarify. Uh, but we do have an awesome guest. Uh, uh, I would say kind of at this point, like an old industry friend for me. Like I met Denise like early in my days slinging hummus and always have appreciated, uh, you know, what she's been building. And uh, I think like I knew when you first like had 50 stores like in, in the New York area and stuff. And it was just awesome to see um, kind of what you were building. So Denise Woodard from uh, Partake Cookies is our guest today. Uh, Denise, how are you doing? Um, and um, how's uh, how's the year been treating you? How are you kind of wrapping things up here? I am doing well. I'm excited to be here. Um, it's been a great but challenging year, I think, as many of your other guests have alluded to between the supply chain challenges and the current economic climate. So lots of uh, challenges, but excited about the opportunity ahead. And we are knee deep in 2023 budgeting and priorities, um, trying to get ready for another busy year. And congrats on, I saw you won, I believe, brand of the year, right? From, from Nosh. My mouth literally dropped on the floor when we heard the news. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> So, so for any of our listeners who are, are living under a rock and, and don't know about Partake Cookies, can you maybe kind of walk us through a little background on yourself, kind of, um, you know, the genesis uh, behind Partake and then and kind of give us an idea of the scale now and um, um, then we can kind of dive in. Sure thing. So I spent my background in CPG, uh, was at Coca-Cola and their venturing and emerging brands group and a sales role. Um, and had no intention of leaving. My daughter came along. She's seven right now, but around her first birthday, we learned she had several food allergies. I was really frustrated with what I could find for her from a taste perspective, from a nutritional perspective, frankly, from a brand coolness perspective. I wanted her to be able to confidently participate in social events that involve food and wanted her to have something that her friends could also enjoy and be excited about and really didn't feel like I could find that in the market. And so left my job at Coke in August of 2017 to launch part take. And to your point, Cameron, um, when we met, we were in about 50 stores. We started out as a self-funded, self-distributed company. And now we make cookies, we make breakfast, um, pancake and waffle mixes. We have some innovation coming out next year that we're super excited about. And you can find us in about 10,000 doors across the U.S., um, Target, Kroger, Walmart, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods. So we've been um, had a busy few years. Yeah, no, it's it's been awesome to see the growth, and uh, we definitely appreciate you hopping on here and, and sharing your experience and your insights um, on the topics today. Um, so now we usually go into like brands that caught our attention um, kind of over the last week or last month. Um, Denise, we'll, we'll start with you as the guest. Like, what brands are kind of um, you know catching your attention right now, or have you tried recently that are interesting um, to you? Um, I feel like I was listening to Jake's episode, but I would have said midday squares regardless, like the, the buzz they're building around their brand and then the fantastic product that they have, um, has definitely been really interesting and exciting to watch and see what they're doing. Um, I feel like this one's top of mind because I, I just opened up a can this morning, but also saw that they won brand of the year on the beverage front, liquid death, like seeing how they're competing from a an advertising perspective with, I, I feel like they were on some list yesterday, of like top advertisers um, for 2022 alongside like very household names. So to see the way that they're um, doing things has been really interesting. Um, other brands that I really like, Haven's Kitchen with the squeezable sauces. They were a Chobani incubator uh, brand with us and really excited to what, about what Ali's uh, building and the content and recipes that come with that. Um, so those are a few of the brands that I'm really digging right now. Very cool. Um, yeah, we're, we're big fans of that. I'm excited to try the cookie dough, uh, launch for midday squares. Um, that I'm, I'm excited to, to try that out. That's definitely kind of a, a skew that's up my alley. CJ, obviously you've consumed a lot of liquids over the last 24 hours. Any beverages that have stood out, uh, from BevNet? Well, I thought, so first of all, on the midday squares, I just want to, I couldn't agree with you more Denise. I just like that, that brand, does such a good job. And like, you see this in founders a couple of times where people have like just a true innate talent 
at promotion and, and that that like I don't mean that antagonistically at all like midday squares feels like it's already like you, you know on on every shelf everywhere and, and they're definitely growing very fast but like Jake does an amazing job of making midday squares feel massive um and I think that serves them really well going forward uh as far as brands came I actually decided to I was just pulling this all up I thought it'd be fun to kind of put things in context for folks on on BevNet and like and how good a job like shout out to John um, and Carolyn and, and, and Mike and all, all the folks who put this together, Jeff. Um, and I'm going to run through who the Rising Star Awards and Brand of the Year are for like the last couple of years to kind of give people a sense of how good BevNet is at like figuring out who's going to exit or be much bigger. Um, so in 2019, the Rising Stars were Super Coffee, Owen, and life aid um you know, you know all things that went on to become much larger and the brand of the year was essentia obviously that exited um in 2020 the rising stars were olipop c4 better booch and vive organic if vive organic got acquired by suja uh c4 is probably about to ipo soon um olipop obviously is a monster um better booch trace doing a great job there and the brand of the year that year was Oatly, um, something that like Cam consistently puts on the topics to talk about in, 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 in this podcast. Um, in 2021, the rising stars were Liquid Death, Poplark, and Cam, the cannabis beverage. I mean, Cam's obviously a, a, an actual social phenomenon. Liquid Death is the definition of a social phenomenon. We all know how much I like Hoplark and Dean. And then the brand of the year that year was Super Coffee. So you can kind of see that sometimes you're, you're a rising star and then eventually a lot of times you become brand of the year. And then this year, the rising stars were Pri Congo brands in general, but like headlined by Prime, which is like a really excellent you know example of, yeah. you know, going from influencer to shelf. Ghost, which is like an incredibly fast growing energy drink that I think does a really amazing use of existing equity. Like they do a lot of you know combinations with Sour Patch Kids, et cetera um shout out lemon perfect and then milo's and the brand of the year was liquid death so like bevnet knows its stuff like like if, if you look back a couple years and i'm sure it's the same denise for nosh and and even for brewbound like they've got their ear to the ground and they understand which ones are growing and eventually become the category dominators that was probably the biggest part of the honor for me, when I looked back at historical brands that had won and to see that we were in the same breath as some of those companies, for us, it was Ben and Jerry's on the food front, Beyond Meat on the food front. Um, I, I was like, it, it made me feel even more proud because um, yeah. I, I do think John and Carol and the team do a fantastic job of just like keeping such a great pulse on the industry. They separate this for, for anyone listening to this that is maybe in school right now, I'm thinking about bringing on an intern this year solely to research this topic. Like what would happen if we indexed, you know, you know, well-respected publications like BevNet, like Nosh, like Brubon, and backward look, looked at the performance of companies and, and turned that into a portfolio um, and, and what that would look like over time. Um, so yeah, BevNet like, needs to spin out a fund here. It's like soon. Well, I have talked Seriously. to before, uh, trust me. <laughs> Taylor, how, how about you? What's uh, what's caught your attention over the last week? Um, I agree with everything you guys are saying about Bevnet and Nosh, and congratulations, Denise. That is super, super exciting. That's amazing, and Thank you. Tough. Um, yeah, no, I um, one thing on Jake. By the way, I obviously I think you guys know I've been a friend of Jake's for now many years, and fully believe in everything that they're doing. He also had the most like whirlwind week ever. Like they launched like the cookie dough flavor. He um, won Forbes 30 under 30 and he got engaged. Like he's just, he had a great week. So anyway, shout out to Jake for a week he'll never forget. And I too am excited to try the uh, cookie dough flavor. Um, I have um, two, just two, two, two ideas of, in mind. So one is um, everyone's kind of like put me in touch with a woman who started a company called Mizo, Mizo, um, which is, it's a ready to drink new Asian, kind of a hard seltzer in a pouch. Um, the flavors sound delicious. I love working with different founders in the Asian community. Um, it's like mango passion fruit, Asian pear, 
Um, there's a lychee flavor. So I, I'm really excited. I've been involved with Lunar, which is kind of an Asian seltzer company for a while now. And um, I'm really excited to, to try the product and also to talk with the founder. And I believe she's based in the Bay Area. Um, and then I have a healthy-ish food suggest a food prep recommendation this week so the company is called like maybe cam you can correct me i think it's called real food from the ground up um i'm obsessed with these like cauliflower pretzel twists i don't know so out of the context for me but <laughs> bought them bought them accidentally and really enjoy them and like them even more than regular pretzels so i may now go buy cauliflower or whatever that's called to try the pizza too i'll gum on the tear this is a big day for you. You went for a morning run and you're bringing healthy products to the podcast. <laughs> vegan, it's it's very... Vegan, uh, yeah, vegan cauliflower products. It's very out of char character after you were posting like uh, your Frosted Flakes and whatever, what, what like Honey Grams, I think was the well, other series. Gram. Yeah, Golden gram. Grams. So that's, uh, I'm, I'm glad to see like we're, we're having an effect on you. Yeah, um, I can tell you how many people have come up to me and A, said they enjoyed the podcast, but more specifically said you're their favorite part of the podcast, which you're my <laughs> <laughs> Look, guys, I do what I, I do what I can. And the third uh, item was um, on my Instagram was a bunch of crunch. Thanks. So. Oh yeah, bunch, bunch of crunch is bunch of crunch is the the wife's favorite. So it's 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 a staple in our house <laughs> as well. Um, so for me, I tried a lot of beverages uh, yesterday. I used to be a big fan, like three years ago, I guess, of like watermelon water. I used to buy it all the time and then they sold. And then since they've sold, they kind of like sputtered out a little bit. Um, so I like, uh, I tried Mela here, which was like a watermelon water, M-E-L-A. Um, it was awesome. Like it was like literally like I just like took a bite out of a watermelon. Uh, really love the product. Always looking for like different electrolyte beverages, like, you know, after you're running, before running. Um, so really enjoyed that. So I'm excited to kind of continue to follow what they're doing. But yeah, out of all the beverages I tried yesterday, which was a lot of different stuff, um, Mela was was one of the ones that definitely um, stood out. I'm also drinking a prickly now, but I know I've talked about prickly a few times on the podcast. Uh, that stuff is just very good. Um, cactus water as well. So um, yeah, uh, I love being out here for BevNet. It's cool to see like all the coolers with beverages out uh, and just kind of a grab bag of different things. But uh the stomach needs a, a bit of a break after the last 24 hours for sure. Um, sweet. So let's start, um, jump into the topics um, today. Um, so the first one um, I was kind of surprised by um, Wink, um, which is the online wine platform, grew really uh, hand over fist uh, during the pandemic, obviously, at the height, they were onboarding about 42,000 uh, new customers on a monthly basis, uh, filed for bankruptcy. Um, a lot of things kind of came out like in the report. Um, I think they were the, the customer acquisition costs, obviously, post COVID. Uh, has skyrocketed. Um, I think their biggest creditor that they owed uh, was was Meta, basically, and the that customer acquisition channel, like we we've, we've heard from so many different brands, just isn't producing the same way that it did during the pandemic with the iOS 14 changes and everything that kind of came in the pipeline. So, um, yeah, CJ and, and Taylor, I, I obviously want to get to you because you're you play in this space in this industry. But Denise, I, I want to start with you, like. Obviously, you, you probably had a big ramp up in online sales during the pandemic, and now you're probably finding what the new normal is, like, and then kind of now adjusting for 2023 forecast. Like, how difficult was that, like, probably abrupt slowdown after that two-year pickup? And, like, where have you found, like, the new kind of medium and, like, how are we attacking online customers versus in-store? And where are you really focusing on that growth for next year? So I will say Partake has really been a brick and mortar retail first business from day one, um, primarily because that's where my comfort level lied there in food service alternative channel. Um, and we were a team of one for the first three years of the business. And so I didn't have any resources that really understood D2C. Had I or had I been able to afford them, I probably would have went like really hard after D2C, but we didn't. We definitely saw a really nice uptick in 2020 due to the pandemic, um, but we didn't. And I will say there was a period of time in early 2021 where we budgeted significantly to see that channel grow, but we pretty quickly into 2021 realized that for us, the customer acquisition cost there our team's experience and bandwidth compared to the opportunity we felt like we had at retail because of the distribution we'd opened up 
paled in comparison. And so we really made the choice to focus on brick and mortar retail and food service alternative channel. Um, I wish I could say it was out of like my foresight or strategy. It was just because that's where our team felt more comfortable and more experienced. And so the way that we think about D2C now is, you know, our website's not going to go anywhere. We know that some of our consumers like to purchase on our site. We have a build your own box option. We have a subscription offering, but we also aren't resourcing the team or our marketing budget to support those channels in a significant way. Like we're expecting that business to be flat for us next year. And it's, you know, less than 5%, less than like two or 3% of our, our budget for next year. So D2C isn't a big piece of our business. A place where we are kind of like dipping our toe in the water a bit more is on Amazon. We've seen that part of our business grow pretty significantly. But when we take a hard look at net contribution, we're like, you know, how, what is the purpose that Amazon serves? Is it a marketing tool and a discovery tool? Then that's one thing. But right now it's not margin accretive for our business. And so taking a harder look on, you know, is that a channel we want to continue to pursue? And, you know, from a marketing perspective, really not trying to have all of our eggs in one basket. We have a, a big mix of, but also like not trying to get distracted. I feel like as a founder, you're always walking these like fine lines of profitability, but growth, like spread the marketing out. So you're building a community, but also don't like spread it too thin. And so, you know, we lean in heavily into sampling, uh, particularly in key markets for us, it's Atlanta, it's Houston, it's LA. Um, we lean into the sampling piece in those markets. We do um, shopper marketing programs with our key retail partners. We're investing more heavily in trade because we're finding that getting the off-shelf displays and using trade to drive trial without going too heavy there has been nice for us. And then on the digital advertising, that does make up a good portion of our marketing budget, but it's more Instacart, it's Critio, it's Kroger Performance Marketing, it's those retailer-driven channels we're able to really track the ROI. Um, and so those are the ways we're thinking about marketing and how we're thinking about growing our business from a channel perspective. Yeah, I think that uh, hopefully, like all the the, the CPG founders that listen to this, are you know taking notes <laughs> during that uh, that part of it because I think the I focus like, part. It's like again, it's a very succinct, like five sentences, exactly what one has to do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it's a good playbook for sure. I think that the issue is like it's the focus part. Like so many of the brands like just don't focus, and you know they get their their the bump in DTC is like, okay, great. Like let's double down on this. And then it's like, well, you can't really see the forest for the trees. And like, that was actually not going to actually stick. And now it's like, okay, let's revert and go back into, into full retail. And I think we've seen like this swinging pendulum for a lot of these brands and that focus that you've had obviously has paid off. Um, CJ, um, we've, we've talked about like the, obviously like post pandemic um, things that are happening, especially when we talked like a little bit about house and kind of everything that happened there a few months ago, what was your take on this? And and are you kind of surprised that these companies like just assume that the good times were going to kind of keep going that they had during pandemic and like, we, you know, during Bebnet, even yesterday, they were talking about like, listen, like online purchasing went from like four to 6% of the total market. It's still like a really small percentage. And we just thought like this huge swing was actually bigger than it was with, with brands like Wink. But what were your thoughts kind of on this news? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you kind of put it that way, because I actually think that calling Wink a pandemic story is a little bit of a red herring. Like, so like Wink came to market before before the pandemic. And like, for those that will bear with me, like the reason that DSC wine, so many people try is because like, as a result of Supreme court cases called Grand Home versus Seal, but I won't get too far into those. You can go direct to consumer with wine. You can save the 25 to 30% you would otherwise pay to a distributor and the amount that it would pay to retail. So the presumption for wine specifically is DSC should work because you know, a massive amount of the cost that is represented on shelf can be recaptured and split as a surplus between the consumer and the supplier, in theory. Um, and yet, time and time again, with the exception of like Penrose slash First Leaf, which and they're just kind of like, you know, think of them almost as like, you know, a high a high frequency trading firm. They're so wired in with like, you know, how they look at like, they don't even think of it as selling one. They think of it as just customer acquisition churn, customer acquisition churn. Like it just doesn't work past a certain amount. And and what you have to believe about that then is like, okay, there's something from a consumer psychology aspect that doesn't lead them to want to discover wine via digital platforms. 
past a certain amount and and, and you know a, a churn just becomes a glass ceiling um like counterintuitively the amazing place for d to c is actually in small production that requires no customer discovery like not a single bottle of screaming eagle makes it to the shelf like you don't have to go custom acquire for costa brown or william Sellen. Like and 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 for for those for those wineries, the fact that you don't have to pay a distributor and then a retailer to get your wine to your consumer is what makes them so profitable. Um, and so, like, I, I think so much of what's happening at Wink, and like, is is as a function of like, hey, and like this is this is actually a good point. We should bring a guy named Nick Rellis on the podcast. He 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 founded Drizzly, and like even he would sit down and admit and say, hey, Drizzly's job is to get you products you already know about and we're going to buy anyways more conveniently drizzly's job has nothing to do with exploration yeah. uh, and you know and he's he's like he's like i fundamentally think as a person who founded a billion dollar e-commerce alcohol company that the consumer doesn't shop for a discovery purchase like, like they shop by walking along the shelf they shop by impulse that's how that category works so like we're just going to see this story time and time again of people convincing themselves that they, they can control customer acquisition costs and like yeah, the pandemic like spiked some things and turned into the houses of the world, but it doesn't change the underlying story that perhaps customer psychology is that they don't want to do digital wine acquisition. And if you're gonna and if you're gonna be a, you know a company that's in wine with with very few exceptions, you better have a different way of going to market that, if it's not wholesale retail, has you know a very different other way of customer acquisition because we've just proven time and time again there's a glass ceiling. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, especially with something like wine, where it's like, th that is like the ultimate product discovery, like making decisions off of like, very innate emotional things, like does this label speak to me, <laughs> where it's like getting it curated to you, and then like, you coming back, it, it's just, it's definitely a hard sell. I think where, where I was positioning as a pandemic story was like, obviously, wink, started before the pandemic, but they had that ramp up. And then they kind of, I felt like they just kept spending at thinking that that rate of interest and that rate of new consumers was going to kind of stay the same. Uh, and what we've seen is like post pandemic, that those numbers definitely have kind of like come to a screeching halt. And like, there's now a new normal to adjust for. Um, Taylor, obviously like you're pretty dialed in uh, to the alcohol space. What were your thoughts on this? And, um, you know, what are you hearing from your brands that are kind of um, also approaching like the online space from, from wine? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with everything that everyone said. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it just I don't know if the model makes sense. Even if you think about like what happened with picks recently too, which has kind of fallen to the wayside. Um, it just it, it in theory it makes sense to have platforms like this. And I think picks, I just want to like give it its proper name. I mean, it's like picks wine discovery, whatever. And they've also like they had a notable amount of layoffs recently. It's a similar kind of situation. And it was a wine discovery platform. I think just all in all, it just, I mean, yeah, I think everyone's saying the same thing around just like not being able to focus specifically on DTC, but also when it comes to wine, just this doesn't seem to work. Um, in theory, it should, um, but it just doesn't. And so I think that they are just, you know, the, another example more recently of a brand that, you know, tried to kind of keep the momentum, as we've all said, during, you know, during pandemic, post pandemic or whatever we're in now. Um, and just couldn't keep up with it. And I mean, I've I've heard rumors that the company, you know, that like weren't. I guess the company wasn't doing too well. Um, but then obviously the news came out, and I had known a few people that worked within the company, and I saw they had changed their LinkedIn profiles to new jobs, like a few hours before the the news was announced. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think everyone's kind of saying the same thing. I think it's a in theory, it's just I don't know if the model works, and obviously. Fix and the situation with wink.com more recently are just indicators that it seems to not be the right approach. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, all right, moving on to kind of, uh, we always like to cover a fundraising topic um, each week. This is definitely a, a bigger raise. Um, Huel um, raised 24 million. I don't think I had any clue how big Huel was. Uh, <laughs> like, and then I saw the numbers that they do like $170 million in revenue. Um, and that they, you know, raised at a $560 million valuation. I also didn't know how long they had been around. Um, it looks like they've been kind of building out the brand over the past few years. So I was, I I've seen the brand I've, I've gotten fed multiple ads for this. Like I'm definitely the target customer for this. I'm going to go try it. 
but I was just really surprised like how well they were executing for a brand. I don't, I don't really know that much about or hear that much about in the space. Um, you know, Denise, you're, you're shaking your head to kind of like in a confirmation that you didn't really know that the size and scale of the brand, like, what, what were your thoughts on kind of the raise? Uh, and then I want to, I want to ask you kind of a follow-up question after that. Um, I would echo everything you just said. Like I was familiar with Huel, kinda. I didn't really know exactly what they made and I definitely didn't understand the scale that they had in their business. Um, I really like, I love these stories where there's a brand that like is so under the radar and then they pop up with like, they've been just like heads down doing the work. Um, and so I, I, good for them. Like, that's fantastic. I'm excited to see that because I think, a lot of times like this industry, like I think we get caught up in like smoke and mirrors sometimes and like things that look good on social media. Like if you have that, like, yeah. So it, it's, I have lots of thoughts there, but I appreciate the like heads down doing the work approach that it appears that they took and like kudos to them. Yeah. I'd much rather be surprised that way versus like if I'm at Expo West and Expo East and I'm like, yeah, you guys are everywhere. You must be like huge. And they're like, yeah, we're in like 3000 stores or 2000 stores. Like we're, you know, we're closing on a couple million. And so it's like, but they're just like, they're really focused on like building out that story. Like these ones are definitely like a much more pleasant surprise. Also like for anyone who doesn't know, like you, you've been an absolute beast when, when raising money over the past few years here, like what have you seen, like kind of like as a CPG brand, you know, raising capital, how kind of different it's been this year and some of the conversations versus years prior. And, and is there any kind of advice you'd have for brands that are looking to raise, you know, next year and kind of what they should focus on their story versus like in years past? So I don't want to reinvent the wheel because I, I feel like a lot of people are talking about like the current um, current climate and the focus on profitability versus growth at all costs. Um, I would say some tips I have are, you know, rather than just focusing on story, focus on numbers. There's some core business essentials, velocity, burn, um, margin that no matter what the fundraising landscape is will allow a business to be able to be successful in raising. And rather than focusing on vanity metrics, focusing on like the metrics that prove whether or not you have a sustainable business. Don't get me wrong. I love a good vanity metric here and there, but like when it comes to the data room, like people aren't going to be as focused on that. And so I think there's that piece. I think as founders, there's this really, I feel like we walk a lot of tightropes. And I feel like another tightrope that founders walk is like balancing, keeping out the noise, but also listening. Like if you're hearing the same thing over and over again, like your margin's too low or your burn is too high, like there's probably some merit to that. But, you know, the way that we've raised is interesting and we have a really long cap table. And because of that, I get a lot of different opinions. And, you know, I can talk to one investor in the morning and they're like, we, we're expecting this percent growth, like grow, grow, grow. And I can talk to another investor in the afternoon and they're like cut all spend we're looking for companies to get to profitability and so i think aligning with your investors on what your plans are um knowing that you know those can change given the market climate to to some regard but like making sure that you kind of keep the noise out to an extent i think that like there's definitely like be a sponge be a student like if there's folks that are seeing a ton of deals that know the industry that you're continuing to hear the same sentiment. Like there's probably something there, but also as founders, sometimes you have to kind of put your head down and do what's the best thing for your business or what aligns with your strategy, the strategy that you and your board or you and your lead investors have agreed upon. Um, so those are a couple of the things that I, I feel like I'm hearing right now and how I would approach it. Um, just like focusing on building a sustainable business because like no matter what the outside landscape is like, like those will be metrics that will serve you well, whether whether or not growth is the focus or profitability is the focus is, is my opinion. Yeah, I think I mean I think that's a really good point because like when I was raising, obviously we got like a ton of no's, but like I was like, it's hard to balance like feedback that you should adjust for versus like the lines in the sand that you have to be like, no, like these are core tenants that we're not going to move off of, and like you definitely can't be like, okay, like got this feedback, changing the deck, change like, but you also have to like adapt the pitch like if you're getting so many no's, um, to like what's working and what's going to resonate. So finding that balance, like I think like comes by looking like inwards and like seeing like what am I not willing to move off of but what's not resonating in the pitch or the story that makes sense and just being kind of fluid with that for sure um Taylor um what were your thoughts kind of on this raise and were you also surprised to kind of see some of the numbers that this brand was putting up 
Well, I agree with Denise. I think it's a cool story. I mean, I think like it looks like they just <laughs> did the job, did the work, and then got the money. I mean, that's that's how you should do it. Um, I obviously am not a consumer of these products. Uh, I think it goes without saying. However, um, I mean, from what I researched when you sent it over, Cam, I mean, it looks like it's like slow and steady. I mean, they started the business, you know, 2017, I think it was, and had some products and like protein powder and stuff, and then expanded over time with more products and, you know, different bars and ready to drink. And they're going to use a lot of this funding, it says, to create new products. I don't know. It sounds like it sounds like it's just a good, legitimate business. And again, I'm, I'm continually surprised by how many people are into you know, low carbon footprint protein powder. I, I, I don't know. I am so sorry, guys. I'm just like, I can't understand, but I know that there is a market for it. And so again, this is just a testament to, you know, just like staying clear mind, you know, staying focused on the goal, which it looks like they did like, to Denise's point, they stayed head down, they got funding before they just continued to grow and grow and scale and scale and iterate as they go. And I have no problem with companies. Like I have more issues with brands that try to start right out the gate. They're in like one market and they're like, we want to raise money to launch 15 new products. And I was like, I don't think that investors will be super happy to look at your deck when it says that. Um, but with them, I mean, it's like, they've done the work, they put in the effort, they've obviously seen proof of concept. So it looks like a lot of the notable amount of funding's going towards more. It looks like they do like merchandise and accessories and products. And so I'll be, as Cam likes to say, I'll be curious to see, but I'm curious to see like what, what else they're going to develop, whether it's just like expanding on the categories that they've already um, kind of built out or totally new categories that I have no insight into, but yeah, good yeah. for them. The, the minimalist branding doesn't usually work for me, but it, it does work in this space. I, I like, like, just like the white and then just the, the bold black text. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, CJ, pivoting to you, are you upset that you missed the opportunity to share a cap table with Idris Elba? Or how are you viewing uh, the uh, investment here? You mean the real James Bond? The guy who's. <laughs> we'll not stand for Daniel Craig slander on this podcast. Um. I, there's so many interesting things going on here. Um, like, what well, one, one thing I want to I do want to touch on before a slight a anecdote about Huel. Denise said something about prop profitability, and I, I, I feel very strongly that there's a lot of people out there demanding profitability, and and I do. Profitability is wonderful. Like, and, and by that I mean like actual EBITDA profitability is wonderful because it allows you to control your destiny. But beyond that, like, uh, like. You know, when, when when you hear like some of these speeches at Bebner and Nosh and like some of the acquirers get up and say, hey, we're more focused on profitability than growth. What they mean is gross margin, not necessarily profitability, because like it's really important for the folks that like listen to this podcast and learn from this, like for the most part, like what what, what these acquirers are doing is they're saying, OK, let me look at your gross margin and therefore your gross profit and then apply what my operating expense percentages would be as your acquirer to get like essentially an adjusted EBITDA number. And then I am valuing you based off that. Um, doesn't mean that you can just throw a, a massively bloated SGNA against trying to drive a number, even if your gross, gross margin is good. Like there has to be within reason, but for the most part, they write your organizational cost to zero because they're assuming they're acquiring you and you're going into their, um, into their machine. So like, I, I think that's got a lot to do with what's going on at, Fuel, you know, just doing some back of the envelope math. If they ended their last fiscal year at 170 and they raised at 560, you know, that's you know, and let's assume that you know this deal got done a while ago, done back because usually when something gets announced, you can be pretty sure it got done months ago. Um, so if we, we kind of take that point, like okay, that that means they're getting like almost a 3.5 turn on on trail in 12 months, which for food is pretty hot, and it should be like like you know the, the, if if they're if they're well over 100 million growing at 40 plus percent a year like that's a really bankable business i'm not surprised they got this done and i think i think part of it and the reason they're at the higher end of those multiples like which you know beverage multiples kind of go all the way up to five right now six in some places if you're liquid death um and uh like there's a reason for that because when beverages work people drink multiple of them throughout the day they have really high customer lifetime value like i I can't necessarily sit down and eat 
well, I can eat like 10 midday squares a day, but the average person can't. Um, and like, and so, you know, the, the, the brand win doesn't necessarily result in, in quite as much, you know, you know, consumption on a per capita basis, but something like Huel, where probably people are eating that once or twice a day, like that makes them a very unique proposition where, where, where you're getting that almost daily thing like a beverage or a coffee brand. And those tend to have slightly higher margins. Um, so I think there's a lot of really cool stuff to learn here. What I will say is because of the amount of brands I follow on Instagram, I'm a target for Huel ads all the time. And it really grosses me out that their primary customer acquisition tool is just the sound of stirring the Huel as it's, it's like that weird, like, like if you're stirring macaroni and cheese and it, it freaks me right the hell out. Um, but apparently it's working because they're getting plenty of customers. Yeah. It's working for somebody for sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, excited to like follow the brand a little bit more now that it's kind of on our radar and, and hopefully we'll be able to, to bring it up. Um, you know, and maybe, uh, I, the founder too, to bring on the podcast, because we definitely it interesting to see. pretty good. I'm going to, because like most, yeah. Soylent in that huge movement of like, oh, we're, you know, no one's going to eat any food anymore. We're all just going <laughs> to drink our blend beverages. Like, well, probably not. Like Huel is one step removed from that, but I bet it tastes good. Other like. Like in my experience, nothing that tastes bad sells $170 million itself. Yeah, um, it, I would assume it's probably like an Owen or a Koa, like kind of a similar like uh, flavor profile for sure. But uh, yeah, no, it'll um, it'll be great to monitor that brand for sure. Um, so one of our Twitter friends in the CPG space, Victor Martino, uh, put out a kind of uh, a, a piece on like the five trends that he uh, was really interested in for 2023. I thought it'd be a good kind of jumping off point for a conversation around like what we think is an interesting trend to kind of look out for next year. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Whole Foods trends a couple episodes back, but I think this can be trends not only related to like uh, you know, organic or keto, but it could also be like inflation, um, you know, focusing on um, gross margin, things like we talked about. So, you know, Denise, when you're thinking about overall trends that you're monitoring for next year that are kind of to the livelihood of, of does Partake have a successful 23 or not? Like, what are you really looking at? We're looking at where our consumers are going to be. Our food service alternative channel makes a good portion of our business. Um, we're on American Airlines, we're in airport concessionaires. So, you know, if there's a slowdown or a pickup in travel um, or like the work, like work from home or going back to the office, like what happens with that trend or like what happens with that will affect that part of our business. So we're really keeping an eye on like how consumers are going to be living their life next year, um, you know, seeing where they're going to be purchasing our product. Cause you know, our thought is that they're not just buying it in the grocery aisle. We have an opportunity to meet them with a lower price offering when they're on the go, whether they're, or when they're on the go, you know, if they're in a captive kind of location, like on an airplane, and we find that that's a way to grow top line revenue, but also um, grow some brand awareness. But if that doesn't happen and consumers work from home or stop traveling or reduce travel, um, that becomes a risk to our, our plan. And so that's one of the things I'm definitely keeping an eye on, definitely keeping an eye on gross margin. Um, you know, we feel like some of the supply chain constraints around like raw material pricing has improved. Um, but, you know, I want to make sure that we're not banking on that too much. We have our core ingredients contracted, but for all the secondary and, and kind of tertiary stuff, penny increases here and there make a big impact on the gross margin. And so um, making sure, or not making sure, but like keeping an eye on the gross margin, particularly as it relates to um, supply chain. And then I think the last thing is just like, consumer spending behavior. We took our first price increase ever in September, um, but we have a busy back to school period, ran promotions um, in, in Q4. And so like, I feel like January will be a true test for us. Of, did our entire category move to this point? Like what's the consumer's response to that? Are we gonna have to um, add more trade to be able to kind of offset some declines in velocity related to price or are consumers not as sensitive because everyone's taking price? Does that affect the frequency in which they buy their our products? And so that's another thing I'm keeping a close eye on. All very interesting and, and definitely top of mind for for most CPG brands. CJ, how about you? What's uh, what's the trend that you're kind of watching, or or maybe kind of altering the investment thesis in in 23? I mean, Denise kind of just summed it up perfectly. So I'm trying to think of something like new to say. Um, 
I think I think she covered this a little bit, but you know, hopefully it's different enough. Like, I I want to see just how well better for you holds up in a potentially recessionary environment. Um, like, what, what what do you know? I I suspect that it'll hold up better than we think. Like, I've I've had a lot of people kind of tell me, oh, you know, oh, you know, I think I think people are going to move back hard into into the the more the more traditional sugar oriented brands because they're cheaper because they have massive scale in their production i'm like i don't know i i I don't think so i think that there could very well be some some elasticity seen in pricing i think i think and hope it'll be less than we than many people think you know to denise's point like because everyone's taking price I i i think that you know the better for you brands have an interesting decision to make like do they take do they take enough price to remain on these profitability mandates that everyone is telling them they have to be on, or do they take just a little less price to try and control the elasticity that consumers might have in a recessionary environment? So it's it's you know seeing how that all shakes out is is going to be very interesting. And, and the other thing I'm going to be looking at is um, like at the you know as we go into a potentially recessionary environment, but certainly a liquidity constrained environment. You, you can almost you know set your watch by the fact that acquirers will say things like focus on profitability not growth you know we're gonna do less acquisitions um and that that is true like the moment that they say them like I'm I'm you know the the depth of what this recession looks like and how consumer spending reacts to a potentially sustained somewhat inflationary environment like is is gonna kind of tell me, whether or not that's going to change. Cause I, I think a lot of people are saying like, Hey, the days of buying, you know, you know, you know, CPG brands when they're around, you know, around or sub hundred million, which has been a thing for quite some time. Everyone's saying, Oh, that's going to go away. They only want to acquire, you know, you know, quarter of a billion dollar brands because that's, you know, we'll see. I, I, I believe they believe it when they're saying it, but we'll see as, as, you know, as we come out of recessionary behavior, whether or not they they start going right back to what they've done historically, which is have pretty set standards on what they acquire. That was a long, long answer. I'm not really sure I said anything, but hopefully people understood. It was it was a long. I agree with Denise, but uh, it made sense for sure. Uh, Taylor, how about you? What are, what are you kind of monitoring for next year, especially like uh, with the large portfolio brands that you manage? Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm just personally professionally, I'm just really excited, I guess, building on the better for you topic. I mean, I, I'm now fully immersed in the non-alk, low-alk space. So I think it'll be really interesting to see, like, you know, what brands outside of like the big ones. Like I had lunch yesterday with the founder of Wires, which was really cool, uh, really interesting to get his take on kind of the global space for non-alk. Um, so, yeah, I, I think with that part of what I do and I don't know, personally, professionally, I just want to see where that whole category goes. And obviously they're implementing more like, you know, a lot of these brands are being integrated into the CVSs of the world, but what does it look like from like Wegmans and Walmart and Target and stuff like that and in concessions. So I'm hoping that some of these brands kind of continue to integrate into kind of some of these bigger ticket retail partners, chain partners and kind of concession partners, and there'll be more options, more, uh, across the board next year. Um, and then like a super random note, but I've been seeing all this stuff around uh, like, and this is very like tactical, but like table side stuff. So like <laughs> development of like cocktails, table side. Uh, yesterday I was reading Bloomberg Pursuits did something about, it was like NYC's most discerning diners get well by old school table side carts. Again, I'm not speaking high level because I think Denise and CJ sum that up all very well. So I'm just going to go into, I'd love to see what a liquid, a liquid nitrogen gelato table side looks like. I love the idea of like a power lunch and that coming back. Um, and so this whole table side thing with the, whether it's like they make cocktails table side or really interesting kind of old retro meals. I don't know. It's just, it's cool. looks really, really cool. That's like a small trend, uh, but more macro is what's going to happen with like low and walk and I'll be, integrated into all that so i'm excited to see what comes next year yeah i could definitely go for like the comeback of like what our parents thought was like fine dining of like table side like uh um it's pretty uh it's pretty funny trying to see for sure i think for me it's a little self-serving but like it's just what i live every day but it's like 
really like the data side of things and what kind of data brands are going to prioritize. Like, I think the days of just like subscribing to data and pulling the top line, like what's my ACV, what's my percentage growth in the space? Like, um, and then just doing it basically because the buyer, the distributors forcing you or mandating you to do it um, is going to kind of go away as I'm having a lot of conversations with brands. And, and when they say, I love data, and then you peel back the onion of, well, why do you love data? How are you using it? And there's not really an answer there um, is going to be super interesting to see kind of play out. And I think like the actionability around data next year. Um, and I think hopefully the like kind of the insurgence of first party data um, and, and having that be really top of mind to brands and, and seeing how brands take their audiences that they're building every single touch point and then how they're really pushing those customers like at the store level, like um, obviously that's something like we we deal with on a daily basis, but even the conversations that I'm having with brands, like towards the end of the year right now, um, it's all about like, where do we, like in a year where we don't know if we're going to be able to go raise capital and in a year where we're really like tightening our belt, like where do we spend? And we're seeing them have a hard time digesting like where they prioritize data in that relationship, but still retailers and distributors are asking for it. So I'm just kind of interested to see like how the relationship between data and brands plays out next year. And that's kind of like the macro thing kind of I'm following um, in terms of more of like a, like an actual trend. Like I thought in the article, like the realization and, and more sanity kind of coming around plant-based um, is definitely one of the big ones. I think we saw that big um, uh, boost obviously. And I think um, now we're starting to see more of a normalization of that. And realizing like it's never going to overtake uh, kind of traditional um, meat products, um, but like just seeing who the real winners in that space are going to be um, kind of after this initial wave um, that kind of did everything over the past few years um, um, kind of play out. So those are kind of the two ones for me. Um, we'll kind of dive into the last topic here. Um, we like to talk a lot about like big CPG brands sometimes and what they view as um, I would say like potential innovation. And so I thought it was kind of funny when it was like big brands are viewing now like miniaturized things as like innovation. <laughs> and it was like, my first thing kind of went to like with inflation and with price increases, like they're probably just thinking of ways to like miniaturize things so that they're still making the same margin on things or being able to charge the same things the same way, like sizes kind of go down for those bigger brands. Um, but I just thought it was very funny that like the topic of like miniaturizing your favorite cereals or your favorite snacks was like the big innovation for big CPG next year. Um, when we've definitely seen these, like, I mean, I remember buying like miniature stuff when I was a kid or like even like the large, like thing, like cereal pieces as well. Um, Denise, are we going to see miniature partake cookies is really the main question of this segment. And, and okay, how turn them into cereal. Yeah. And how do you view kind of like innovation, like in this space? And cause obviously you're you're definitely an interesting like brand where you're you both like focus a lot on the SKUs you have, but you're also constantly coming out with new items, like more than I think most people would actually recommend that a, a brand sometimes does. Like you, you do a really good job of like owning cookies, but then going into other spaces and like really prioritizing innovation. So like, well, I guess a lot of questions here, but what was your thoughts on the miniaturization thing? And then how do you really prioritize innovation as well? On the miniaturization piece, it made me chuckle and think about my days at Coca-Cola and what we viewed as innovation. And it wasn't, it was the, the same thing, you know, with seven and a half ounce can and a 10 ounce can and a 12 ounce can. And like, that was like the different sizing, like form factor innovation was something that, that we did. And so it just kind of made me laugh kind of at those days. Um, from an innovation perspective for us, we are going to launch a new product with um, one of our key retail partners next year that is not a cookie product and will live in the snack aisle. So we're excited about that. Um, you know, we've taken, we are going to take a data and retail partner driven approach to innovation. So if we have one of our key customers that's willing to get behind a new product that our data also says we should be entering into that our customers are also asking for, then we would take on that undertaking. I think you know, we launched, we have a pancake waffle mix that's available at Target right now. We had baking mixes that we launched previously, and we're going to sunset those. I think there's something to focus. Um, and so I'm really challenging myself and the team to be able to, to do that. Um, so we 
are definitely going to continue to have innovation. We're going to put a lot more stage gate and data, a more data-driven approach around how we think about that. Um, and that innovation, you know, will come in different form factors as we explore different channels and food service and alternative channel and club and things like that, as well as flavors. Um, but we also are holding ourselves to a pretty rigorous skew rationalization process. So if a flavor isn't performing for us, you know, how do we have, how do we add something that is, and, you know, how do we make tough choices around what needs to be sunset in the business? Hey, Denise, on, on that, I, I'm, this is always a question that's fascinated me. If you have something that is regionally strong, but is not one, of, you know, what wouldn't otherwise meet your, like your rationalization metrics or, or regionally, or like, uh, I would even go as far as to say like retailer specific, like, Hey, I don't want to piss off target and this thing kills it. Like, like how do you make that decision? Welcome to Ginger Snap. Um, we find that, uh, you know, there's definitely SKUs in our portfolio right now that are not in our core mix when we go to a new consumer to present that we find, whether it's because of retailer or demographic or geography that are performing like outsized well, totally bucking the trend of how it performs in other parts of our business. And if that retailer, you know, is one of our top 10 retailers and that's a core piece of our business there, then, then we keep the product. Um, I don't know if that's how we'll continue to make that decision as our business grows, but that's how we've thought about it thus far. Like, I don't feel like we can afford to, especially if it's a healthy margin product um, and we can operationally manage the, the flow of, you know, when we need to make it and not having too much inventory on hand, et cetera, of it, that we are in a position where we can start pulling SKUs off the shelf and shortening our brand block, taking out one of our best selling products. Mm -hmm. Did you, when you, switched into other product categories like i'm always interested in like the internal metrics that then cue like hey we should do something else or we should move into another space like was there like an acv metric or something you were looking at just for the cookies when you were like okay when we get to this mark then we can kind of move on and focus on other stuff or was it really like after the investment came in you're like okay growth needs to come and like from different areas and that's when you started kind of going after like different innovations as well Kind of a combination of the both. Um, I think it's important that we have a strong core business. And so is our brand velocity wise stacking up against our competitors? If not, then, you know, what, what's the problem? Like, what do we need to adjust to be able to, to fix that? And if it is, then I'm open to exploring innovation. Um, so, you know, I don't think we've reached the pinnacle for our cookies by any stretch from a distribution or velocity perspective, but I feel comfortable enough with where our cookie business is um, and feel the the need to grow the business and feel excited about this new product. And so we're going to take, um, it doesn't feel like a leap. It's pretty like tangential to cookies, yeah. um, but it's definitely something slightly different. Awesome. Well, we are up against it. Um, I know we didn't get to everybody on this last topic, but we are uh, up against it with um, uh, two o'clock kind of fastly approaching. Um, Denise, where can people kind of reach out to you if they ever have any questions or they want to learn more about Partake? Um, you know, where's, where do you make yourself the most available? Um, you can find us at partakefoods.com. We're across all social media handles at Partake Foods. And you can find me on Instagram at Denise G. Woodard. And I am uh, pretty busy on LinkedIn. So you can find me there too. I appreciate you having me and the, the good conversation. Yeah. This is awesome, Denise. I love how well you know your business. It's so, it's so much fun to talk to you. Yeah, keep crushing it. We're going to keep rooting from you um, from the sidelines. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, most importantly, I'll, I'll continue to be a customer. So thanks so much. Cookie Thank monster. You guys. Yeah. All right. Have a great week. We got to get back All to right, Bevnet. Talk to you later. Thanks, guys. See you. <laughs> Bye, Bye, guys.